Greetings, everyone, and a warm welcome to Intersections, where our aspiration is to dissolve boundaries, dissolve boundaries between profit and purpose, between East and West, inner and outer, science and spirituality, all kinds of boundaries, in order to allow us to discover our fullest potential as individuals and communities at large. Today, it is my distinct pleasure to have in our midst Ingrid Fettelli, who will speak to us about a topic very close to my heart, very close to your heart, and that is the topic of joy. Ingrid has been a designer, but she's also been a foundational researcher and an author on this topic of joy. Her work has revealed the hidden influence of our surroundings on our emotional life and our well-being. She has a TED Talk on where joy hides and how to find it, which has had more than 17 million views. And this groundbreaking research and work of hers on this topic of joy, which um, in some ways really challenges some of the conventional notions of what it takes to be happy. Uh, she wrote about that in a book called Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. Um, with 15 years of experience in designing and branding, Ingrid has led design programs for some of the world's leading brands like Target and Eileen Fisher, Condé Nast, American Express and others. And she's also been featured on a whole host of leading media like the New York Times, The Atlantic, Fast Company and The Guardian. Um, and here is a quote from her that uh, can spark the first level of thinking for you and for me, which is too often we move through the physical world as if it were a stage set, a mute backdrop for our daily activities. Yet in reality, it is alive with opportunities for inspiration, wonder, and joy. So as I invite Ingrid now into this conversation with us, I ask you to think about one thing. When you look at the environment around you, your space at home, your space at work, in the world outside, as you walk through the streets of your town, etc., what is one thing in the environment that gives you a lot of joy consistently, reliably over time. It's just given you a lot of joy. What is one thing in your environment, right? As you think about that, let's invite and welcome Ingrid into our midst. Ingrid, thank you so much for joining us. Warm welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be with you. Same here. In fact, a very special joy. I'm going to reveal something to you, which um, I would typically feel, you know, not very comfortable revealing in to the public. And the good news is that since we are recording this session, uh, our friends, you know, the listeners don't actually know what date <laughs> this conversation is happening at. And so I can do that in, in private with you while, while not yet, you know, sharing it outside. But today is my birthday. <laughs> oh, happy and, birthday. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And I, I can't imagine a more special way of beginning, you know, this day for me uh, than a conversation about joy. From a very early age, you know, joy has been at the very center of my exploration and quest as well. You have pursued it in some really meaningful and beautiful ways. Uh, for me, it was um, more of an inner quest, you know, a mystic quest of studying some of the uh, truth seekers of the ages and how they had uh, explored, you know, the texture of joy, the extent of joy that one can experience, you know, can it be infinite, <laughs> you know, can it be ever new, can it be ever conscious, you know, is it dependent on situations? And so um, when I chanced upon your book, you know, some time back, I was like, this is wonderful. This is exactly what the world needs, a more modern treatment of uh, a timeless topic. So, so, so joyful again to have you with us and thank you for all the beautiful work you're doing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there's one thing that you share um, in your work, in your book that I wanted to maybe start with, which is the relationship between joy and happiness. Mm. And you have something quite you know, thought-provoking that you offer that to us. You say that 
joy lives in our moments. And in some ways, it's a lot more simpler and easier to find than happiness. Can you, can you talk a little bit about you know, how you see the relationship between these two? Well, we often use these two words, joy and happiness, interchangeably, right? And yet they, they mean different things. So happiness, from a scientific perspective, is a broad evaluation of how we feel about our lives over time. It has to do with whether we feel like we have a sense of meaning and purpose in life, how we feel about our work, our health, how connected we feel to other people. All of those things go into this pretty complex equation that we call happiness. Whereas joy is much simpler and more immediate. So when psychologists use the word joy, what they mean is at an intense momentary experience of positive emotion. Um, it's something that we can measure through direct physical expressions, things like smiling and laughter, a feeling of wanting to jump up and down. Those are all different ways that we can understand, know we're experiencing a moment of joy. Um, and I think that as a culture, we tend to be obsessed with the pursuit of happiness, with this idea of like a long lasting, happily ever after, we'll find it and then we'll just have it and we won't have to do anything to maintain it. We'll just, we'll get there. And we associate that a lot of times with big milestones in life. We'll get the promotion, we'll get the house, we'll get the baby or the partner or whatever, and then we'll just be happy. But we all know that life really isn't like that, that there isn't that kind of durable state of happiness. What actually is more accessible to us is these little moments of joy. And they're so small sometimes that we think of them as trivial. We overlook them. And yet they're really important because that, I think, is the foundation of, of real happiness, of real well-being, is actually noticing these little moments and watching how they add up. Yeah, there's something really powerful in that idea that rather than seek to wait for a certain set of milestones to be accomplished in order to kind of like find that perfect sustained happiness to make it our responsibility to seek out joy in every moment. I think that's what I'm, I'm hearing from you. And yeah, it's, I, uh, I think it's, there are some moments in life that are not going to be joyful. So I think I recognize that it's not to say that we should that every single moment is is able to be turned into a joy. There are some right. parts of life, I think, that aren't. But I think that in any given day, we can find moments of joy. And even in difficult times, I think, you know, the pandemic has really brought this to light that a lot of the factors I mentioned that go into happiness have been challenged for a lot of people. Health. Right a sense of connectedness, a, mm -hmm. you know, a sense of meaning in our work, right? We're all reevaluating our relationship to work. That's all happening right now. And so there are a lot of things that make it hard to be happy right now. And yet we can still find these little moments of joy in a day. And that might mean that you find three moments of joy in a day, not every moment, um, but they are still accessible even when times are really hard. Yeah, yeah. You know, that reminds me of some research I'd read um, a few years back on uh, the science of um, coping with loss, you know, with grieving. And, um, you know, one of the key findings that jumped out for me there was how you find that there are some people who are able to cope with, you know, for example, the loss of a loved one, you know, in a way that we might all look at and say, you know what, that's a, that's a pretty healthy, heroic, authentic way to cope with it. They're not disconnected from their grief. They're not disconnected from the sorrow of that loss, the permanence of that loss. 
And yet, um, they're also finding moments in their day while they're going through the grieving process to actually be in joy, to be mm -hmm. in a place of deep appreciation for what this person has meant to them, to fondly remember a certain lighthearted moment that they have with them and even giggle and smile and a memorial service, you know, work on light, lighting people's hearts up, lightening their hearts up a little bit. So it reminds me a little bit of that, you know, that discipline of how, as what you said, even in the harder moments, there might be little, little pieces there where you can actually infuse joy. I think that's right. And, and actually, I think the research shows that when you allow those little moments of joy into your process of grieving or mourning, it actually makes you more resilient. That mm -hmm. taking time to experience those little moments of joy, people who do that are more likely to recover um, from the traumatic event or from the loss and feel a sense of perspective, feel a sense of, you know, health and well-being after as opposed to being fully weighed down um, and unable to move past the tragedy. Ah, that's, that's beautiful. You know, one of the things I do in my class is have my students share some aspect of the personal journey and I'm just sparked with something here because one of the students shared the story about how he said when I was growing up, I was once on a train with my father and we were going somewhere and late night I wanted to go to the bathroom. And so I left the carriage and I went to the bathroom and then I came back and I laid on with him and I slept. And the next morning I saw, like heard his voice, you know, booming in the corridors, you know, in, in the carriage, like looking for me. And then I woke up and realized I'm sleeping next to the wrong man in the dark. I've come and just like gone to sleep next to the wrong man. And he, you know, woke up as well startled. And then my father is going from, you know, cabin to cabin. And he actually comes to our cabin, sees me and this man there. And then he says, I'll never forget the look on this man's face, on my father's face. He said it was a mixture of relief in finding his son. At the same time, a sense of like consternation and anger at like, who is this guy? Why is he sleeping next to him? And a sense of just uh, hilarity and just like comedic relief because like he just realized like, yes, this is what my son did. He just went to the bathroom and just came back and did, did something really silly. And he says, each time, remember that moment just brings a smile to my face. And he said, my father passed away a few years later, mm -hmm. but I want to share the story with you all because I want to invite you to curate and really take to heart these, these sweet moments that you have with your loved ones so that from time to time when you really miss them, you know, it'll bring a tear to your eye but it can also bring like a smile to your face. Yeah, They are so bittersweet, many of those moments, right? Um, but I think it is, it's the height of our joy that will determine the depths of our sorrow and vice versa. And so our ability to feel that sorrow means that we, that we really loved, that we were really in it. And so I think that that's right, that, you know, if we can take these moments now to, to think of these delightful experiences, these little moments that might seem so fleeting as not to matter and really capture them and soak them in, it will mean that we'll feel greater loss later, but it will, I think, have been worth it because we will have really truly felt our joy. Wow, what a powerful, paradoxical, but powerful point you're making. Beautiful point. Yeah, thank you. So let's think about this quest now that you're inviting people to take to find those pockets and those moments of joy. One of the things that really intrigues me about your work is the whole recognition that there is an outside-in approach that we can more methodically and mindfully take to activating joy in us rather than purely an inside-out which has been a tradition, for example, in spiritual and mindfulness circles. 
Can you talk a little bit about the difference between these two and what draws you to the outside in? Well, on the theme of intersections, I come to the study of joy from a, a different angle, I think, than most of the people in the scientific community or in the wellness or self-help community, um, or even from a, you know, a, even from people in the philosophical community. I come to this as a designer. I, um, I studied uh, industrial design, and it was in my first year of school, graduate school for industrial design, that a professor made a comment. He said that your work gives me a feeling of joy. And I had all of the things that I'd made over the course of the semester lined up on a table. And I was looking at these, some cups, there was a stool, there was a lamp. And I thought, what, how does that create joy? And there was this panel of professors in front of me, and they just kind of waved their hands a lot. And, um, I think that's something designers do because they're trying to make tangible this a lot of ineffable things. And so there's a lot of hand waving that goes on in, in design, um, maybe in a lot of a lot of academic circles. And they couldn't answer this question. And so that was what started my exploration into joy, not because I thought, oh, joy is so interesting and I want to study it, though I later found that that's the case, but because there was something that I couldn't understand or explain, which was how a tangible object, how this physical thing could spark joy in someone else. And so I set out to, to understand that. And I started asking people about the things that brought them joy, the things and the places that brought them joy. And as I did this, I noticed that there were certain things that came up again and again and again. Um, so things like bubbles and cherry blossoms in the springtime and, um, confetti, rainbow sprinkles, rainbows, polka dots, um, pops of bright color. There were all these things that just seemed to be not just joyful for a few people, not just joyful for one gender or ethnicity or people who are older or younger. Everyone seems to find these things joyful the world over. And so I started to wonder if these might be universally joyful things. And if they were universally joyful things, then what did that mean? How could something be universally joyful? I mean, it's a little bit like the, the Jungian collective unconscious. Like, where does this come from? This idea that things could be, could spark this feeling of joy all over the world. And I found that there are certain evolutionary reasons why some of these things might be joyful and, and relates to their physical attributes. So bright color is joyful the world over. If you think about any festival, any celebration you see all over the world, we're about to enter Lunar New Year, which is one of the most colorful. Um, they all have bright color. You can picture them, imagine them in gray and brown and black. It doesn't have the same impact, right? So there's something inextricably tied, inextricably linking color to joy. We see this even in children's drawings. Children, even very young children before school, um, will use bright colors to represent happy scenes. And then when they're representing sad or angry scenes, they use dark colors. They use uh, black, brown, purple um, to represent those scenes. So there's something happening there. And I think, you know, one potential explanation. And of course, all evolutionary explanations are, are speculative to some extent. Um, but one explanation is that bright color, our, our color vision evolved to help us find ripe fruits and young leaves, our primate ancestors, um, looking for these things in the treetops. And 
So when we see a pop of bright color, it is a almost vestigial sign of energy, of nourishment. And so we still feel energized when we see these things, even though we're not going to go eat the, you know, the, the little red car that we see passing us on the street or the, the yellow um, raincoat. But those things still light, give us this feeling of, of energy and, and joy. And so for me, the knowledge that there are certain things that can predictably elicit this feeling of joy is really exciting because it means that, to your point about inside out versus outside in, we can look for moments of joy and we can start to spot certain things that are going to be reliable predictors of joy in our surroundings. I really like the um, idea of looking for universals. And I'm very drawn to that notion that hidden, you know, behind our experience of life are certain universal laws, you know, of human nature. And regardless, as you said, of ethnicity and gender and all of the other ways in which we, you know, try to kind of get identified with certain, you know, social demographic or other, you know, factors in our life, that there lies just this common humanity, this shared humanity, this, you know, of untapped potential that all of us can explore. Um, and uh, the fact that you found, you know, these universals is is uh, is beautiful. It's beautiful. I I also wonder there that um, does that collective consciousness have a certain temporal quality to it? Uh, so, for instance, if you were to have done this analysis like a thousand years ago, um, you know, do you think that um, even while there was a certain universality to the findings you might have generated, you know, at that time? they might have been somewhat different from what you're generating today. Uh, so that we're all kind of like subtly influencing each other, you know, in consciousness terms, but we also shift perhaps over, over centuries. Cause if I am just naively speaking, I mean, you're, you're the designer here. I'm just a, mm -hmm. a amateur, um, you know, consumer of design. But if I look back uh, in the yester years, um, at times in a sense, like the, the design aesthetic, you know, of a certain era or period, you know, changed, you know, over time in terms of what it is that people at least put in the museums. Right. So I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it relates to how these aesthetics operate in our lives and in our emotional world. And the way that I think about it is that they operate on three different levels. So you have your personal preferences, your individual joys. Um, and that might be things like a, a t-shirt you got at, a, com at a, a concert 20 years ago that's so faded and worn out that no one else would think it's joyful, but it still has joy for you. It still has resonance for you. So there are certain things that we all have that we've learned through experience or that we're drawn to because of our personalities. Those are individual. And then there are cultural joys, um, things like you know, foods we love to eat, um, certain kinds of dress that we associate with joy. Sports teams are part of culture. Um, so there's their culture and subcultural joys. And, um, and that's a second level that's shared with more people. And then there's this universal layer. And so this universal layer, it's not to say that everyone is going to express these preferences all the time. There are still going to be people who like would prefer to have a, a gray and black apartment to one with lots of color in it. Um, but these preferences, these universal preferences get filtered through our culture and then filtered through our individual preferences. Um, so they're still underneath there. There's something visceral that's happening. It's, it's an unconscious layer um, of response, but 
there are things that modify and modulate it. So over time, a thousand years ago, um, there would have been different cultural influences and there would have been different personal influences um, because of that culture. And that all would have modified these universal preferences in a different way, but they still would be present. Um, and because they are related to our DNA, they're related to how the environment was when our ancestors evolved. Um, we're talking about 80 million years of evolution um, that sort of shaped these preferences where our environment was relatively stable. Our ancestors were living on savannas. Um, they were surrounded by greenery, by um, open spaces with some tree cover. So there were, it was a pretty consistent environment and the, the things that would have aided their survival would be pretty consistent. And the, the dangers would also be pretty consistent. And so that's really what shaped these universal preferences. But of course, they get shifted and modulated by what's happening in the moment. Yeah, that's a nice structure to give it. Um, I, I'm, I'm finding that very, very helpful. Uh, the, the, the individual and personal, the cultural, and then the, and then the universal, and uh, how the universal gets re-expressed in much more unique ways for different people and cultures over time. Uh, I like that. Thank you. Just one more thing I would add to that, which has to do with yes. your point about design aesthetics and how design aesthetics change over time. And I think it's really important to note that design aesthetics don't usually reflect these universal preferences, I see. which is wild. They often reflect um, ideologies of the time, political ideologies, religious um, ideologies. They, I would say that the design that is present in public space, private space yeah. is a little bit different because it's, it's generally not as controlled by architects. It's more designed yeah. by people and their needs. Um, but public space is very much dictated by power and who yeah. has power and what they yeah. want to achieve with that power. And so I think that if we look at whether it's a thousand years ago or now, mm -hmm. the kinds of buildings that get built, right. I don't think most of them reflect human, real human, um, deep human needs and certainly not human emotional needs. Yeah. Or, or, or maybe, um, Ingrid, if I were to build on your point, the, emotion that they're serving is not necessarily joy in other words oh, for sure. those in power and those who had the resources to build these structures may have wanted to evoke something in us which was emotional but probably not joy in some of these contexts with some of the paintings <laughs> you know and, i think that's right i think people. that's right yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Actually, uh, there's such a wealth of insight and uh, you know possibilities to each of these you know aspects of our conversation. We could we could just spend all the time on this, and yet I feel drawn to pulling us forward because there's so much more to the story. There's so much more to the story. So, so in that spirit, there is uh, this really beautiful idea that you have offered up, and I'm going to quote you here. You know, you say. If we can say that we have universal rights to life and liberty, health and safety, and that these are worth fighting for, then I also think we need to consider a universal right to joy. Let's talk about that. What Let's. is it that prompts you to feel um, that joy is so perhaps like innate in the human condition that we can see it almost as a right uh, in all circumstances? If you think about what joy evolved for, because our emotions are evolved responses, Joy evolved, you know, we have six primary emotions. I think it got broadened to seven over time, but generally speaking, we're considered to have six primary emotions. Um, let's see if I can get them all. It's uh, anger, 
sadness, disgust, fear, surprise, and joy. Joy is the only positive one in that set of, of basic emotions that are consistent the world over. Surprise can be positive or negative, um, but, but joy is the only consistently positive emotion. Joy evolved to signal to us that we are moving in the direction of things that are likely to increase our, thrive, uh, our potential to thrive, to flourish. So when I see those plants behind you, I see lushness, I see life, it gives me a feeling of joy. And that tells me that I'm moving towards something that might be helpful, might be sustaining for me as an organism. So to say that the baseline goal of existence is survival, and that's all we expect people to be entitled to, has implications for how we construct our society. It, it says that people who are poor or who are um, vulnerable in some ways, really all they should expect is just to survive. That, that's enough. And to me, that's not enough. I don't think that that is what the human condition is here for. Um, and so to say that, I think that's, it, it's very unfair to say that people who don't have certain resources or abilities should just aim to survive. And so I think that if, if joy is the sign of thriving and we all have a right to thrive because that's what we're here for, then I think we do have a universal right to joy. And then if that's the case, it changes how we look at the way that we design our systems, the way that we design our, for example, our public housing. Public housing is a really great example of this because those aesthetics of joy, the, you know, the, the signs of, of joy, color, round shapes, all of these things that we, lushness, greenery, these things that we associate with joy are notably absent. And they're not just absent because it's cost effective, although that's usually the reason that's used. It's, it's because we have this philosophy in our society that people should just aim to, to have the bare minimum to survive. When in fact, I think these things are, are things that help us thrive. And if we were to, to see people as having the, the dignity and the right to some joy in their lives, these small moments of joy, then we would think about those spaces differently. Uh, we would think about, I think, a lot of structures in our, and systems in our society differently. Uh, folks, uh, Ingrid's uh, TED Talk is wonderful. In a very, very short um, offering from her, you get to see some really vivid imagery around these ideas, Ingrid, that you're talking about, uh, both of like hospitals, <laughs> just very, uh, yeah, just very unjoyful at times, corporate, you know, kind of uh, office uh, designs, um, uh, housing projects and, and, and beyond. It seems to me that maybe the world in the recent past has just assumed a certain like monolithicness, if that's a word, to how we need to show up, you know, in certain circumstances, if you're, you know, living a life of a certain amount of struggle, uh, or if you're in the hospital and really facing some kind of like serious health issue, or if you're in the office where you have to do serious work, then what's the role of joy there? You know, there's no role of joy there. So maybe we don't really need to think about, you know, infusing joy in the environment, right? And, and I think, you know, the conversation we are having today is awakening us to the centrality of joy as a key enabler of 
going from just surviving to thriving in everything we do. Yes. And I think that if you believe that joy is an extra in life, which is how we how we condition people to see it, right? It's central to childhood. But then as we get older, joy gets moved to the side and work takes center stage. Uh, we separate out work and joy. Joy is supposed to happen after work and on the weekends. Um, we separate out, uh, you know, we're supposed to grow up and, and uh, not be too joyful or colorful in the way that we dress. Um, so if we view joy as this extra, and I think, even more dangerously, if we view joy as a reward, as something we earn and we have to earn it, then it's very easy to look at people who are in vulnerable positions in society and say, well, did they earn it? And it's this whole, it's really funny how our emotional, our model of, of emotions is tied to our our political philosophy, this pull yourself up by the bootstraps, which I think I read recently is actually an impossibility. The whole point of that phrase was that it's, it's actually literally impossible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, that's how it was originally intended. And we've taken it to become this value of hard work and individual, you know, individual virtue and all these things. Um, if that's our model, then we look at people who don't have certain things and we say, oh, they didn't earn joy. So how could they deserve joy? And we look at people who earn lots of money and we say, well, they can do what they want because they earned it. Um, and so joy, along with resources, gets incredibly unequally distributed. And we don't have a we we don't have a basis for having a problem with it because our fundamental model is that joy is something that has to be earned and undoing that begins with an unlearning for ourselves we have to disentangle joy from virtue and we have to say that people who are and from and from money um, and so we have to say that joy isn't something we earn it's something we are inherently entitled to as living human beings when we do that we have to say that okay, that homeless guy over there is entitled to as much joy as I am. And you know what? That nurse who's been working hours and hours and hours taking care of COVID patients who seems so virtuous and deserves, she also deserves the same amount of joy. She doesn't deserve any more joy because she works so hard and, and contributes to society. Joy is not tied to our contribution to society. It is tied to our inherent worth as human beings. That is a really hard lesson in a society that tells you that you are worth what your work is and what your output is and what your contribution is. It's really hard. I'm still working on it. I'm still just discovering this, but yeah. it's, it's hard. That was so eloquent, so heartfelt and so important to hear. Um, I, I loved it. Um, I'm gonna go back and listen to it again. Um, one of the individuals I admire a lot is Mother Teresa and I, was watching a film on her, a documentary film, surreal footage of Mother Teresa. And one thing that struck me after 90 minutes of watching her and her sisters in action was that the predominant emotions that you see on their faces and their reactions and their everyday moments are two. One is love, mm. and guess what the other one is? Joy. Joy, joy. It was fascinating. You know, here they are. Uh, in the midst of a fair amount of pain and suffering, right? Serving the dying and the destitute and the diseased and uh, just people in all kinds of uh, state of struggle. 
And yet, while they're holding those little emaciated, you know, babies at times, or little children, um, almost skeletal at times in their bodily profile because of the malnourishment and all of that, you know, they're, they're just uh, pouring love, but they're also experiencing the joy of service, uh, mm -hmm. taking joy in, you know, the magical eyes of this baby or, or, or just the, you know, the touch and the holding, you know, of this uh, soul, you know, in the hands and all that. And it was a revelation. I think both for me and my students where I've shared this movie with them to recognize the um, fact that you don't, you know, give up that right to joy just because, you know, you're in that state of struggle, you know, or you're seeking to help people in that state of struggle. And I will quote from her, actually, where she says, you know, the people we serve, they do, do not need to see your sudden face. Their life is already enough of a struggle. And so, you know, she was really always encouraging uh, people to enter that space with love, a sense of service, but also with joy. Mm. It's powerful to hear that and to, to reflect on that because I think it's almost like we feel that it's wrong to be so joyful when others are suffering and yet that doesn't make their lives any better. Yeah. No one's life is improved by denying yourself joy. Yeah, yeah. And so showing up with that joy and the, the basic joy of connection. And I think too, there's something about, you know, one of the things that has been so challenging about the pandemic is the distance. And I think we often underrate the importance of just physical contact, the physical contact we have with people, the physical contact we have with the objects around us. And the pandemic really brought that to light that the loss of sensory input from just being able to get out and be among other people and be in public places and see different things, um, the loss of touch, the loss of hugs, the loss of um, all of that holding babies. <laughs> um, it is a profound loss and it distances us from people and from things and it distances us from that emotion. I think so often it is the physical sensations that are the trigger for me, the, the smell of my toddler's head, you know, is like a very, and I know for so many parents, this is this very visceral thing that activates. Doesn't mean if I can't smell that, I don't love them any less, but there is something visceral, emotional that gets activated from contact is why it's so important to us. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, and I agree with you about the, about the touch and the holding and the physical presence and connectivity um, as, as being such a natural source of joy. And congratulations on the toddler. I think you were telling me before the uh, podcast recording that this is your first, yeah? Your, yeah. Your, your one child, yeah? Yeah. yeah. What is uh, the toddler's name? Oh, his name is Graham. Graham, okay. Graham. Yeah. Oh, how wonderful. Well, uh, I want to thank Graham for allowing us a you know, little access to her, his mommy <laughs> for, for this period of time <laughs> to... Um, to, to allow us to have this conversation. Um, you know, I'm curious about something that you build so richly in your book, uh, and that is um, what you call the aesthetics of joy. And, and you talk about how, you know, the power of the aesthetics of joy is that they speak directly to our, to our unconscious minds, bringing out the best in us without our ever being aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, talk to us a little bit, if you can, about what are these aesthetics of joy? So I talked about how these universally joyful things that we see around things like rainbow sprinkles and confetti and elements of nature, that these things 
are not, it's not the things themselves that bring us joy. It's their physical attributes. It's their sensorial attributes. And in design, we, we use the term aesthetics to describe those sensorial attributes. Often when we use the word aesthetics, we're talking about vision because that is our dominant sense. But you can also have uh, movements that influence aesthetics, scents, sounds, textures that can all be part of, of aesthetics. And so I identified 10 of these aesthetics of joy and they are reliably related to uh, certain kinds of feelings of joy. So bright color is a bright color and, and light are associated with energy. Um, so that's one of the aesthetics of joy. Um, another one is round shapes. Um, round shapes are associated with uh, play and childhood. Um, there's research that shows that when we see round shapes, they actually uh, it actually calms a part of the brain that is activated when we see sharp angles um, it's called the amygdala and it's associated with fear and anxiety. So if we are, surra are surrounded by, if we're in a spiky room or surrounded by angular furniture, that part of the brain is going to be more active, even though we won't realize it. Um, it's just happening unconsciously. Whereas when we look at curves and circles, it calms the mind, sets us at ease. Um, fluid curves have also been associated with creativity, increased creativity and open-mindedness. Um, so these, these aesthetics of joy are influencing us without our even realizing it. Another one is um, harmony, which has to do with symmetry and balance, and repetition, pattern, like the pattern behind me. That's an expression of harmony. Um, and one interesting study at the University of Chicago showed that uh, students were asked to take a, a math test. And then um, they looked at pictures of angular objects and round, uh, not angular objects, sorry. Um, students were asked to take a math test and they, they were shown pictures of environments that had lots of asymmetrical right. angles and then environments that had pictures of symmetrical environments. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that the students who looked at um, asymmetrical environments were more likely to cheat when they graded their own test, they went back and oh, graded wow. their own test. They were more likely to cheat than those who looked at symmetrical environments. So the amount of symmetry in mm -hmm. our environments, which seems like yeah. such a, you know, inconsequential thing actually influences the way we behave and it influences our behavior toward others. Yeah. So these aesthetics of joy, when I say they act on us unconsciously, um, they, they bring us joy, but they also influence our behavior in subtle ways that, uh, that then changes our interactions with others, how trusting we are and how trustworthy, um, how, yeah. how connected we are to other people. All of those things can be influenced by our environments. Yeah. You know, a few years back when we had the, privilege of being able to kind of build our own home. And I remember, yeah, so, so what happened is we we acquired this piece of land and we we, we built this place and uh, I didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, I left it all in the hands of my wife uh, because I trust her much more than I trust myself mm -hmm. in terms of her aesthetic instincts and just the practical vision of what this home should be. So I actually literally didn't even go to the construction you know, site until the home was fully built. Wow. I happened to be traveling at the time that we moved in. so. You know, basically for like a couple of weeks when all the setup was done, I wasn't even in the same country. Mm -hmm. And so when I entered, it was like pretty much all there. <laughs> you wow. know, the, the little home palace where it was all done. And that was the first time I saw that place, you know, ever since we acquired the property. But I walk in and I still remember the infusion of joy that I had 
in just seeing the layout. And a key part of that is what you were just saying about, you know, sharp edges versus curves, because she'd chosen to make all the walls be, you know, having curved edges rather than wow. curved edges, including, you know, a little bit of a, you know, small partition wall that we had, which was also curved as opposed to edge. And then, and then yesterday I was in a new building in what they call Manhattanville um, in on the Upper West Side here for the business school at Columbia which is a little bit an offshoot now of the main campus. And it's a big new victory for the school to finally have like even, even you know, more richer space and a beautiful building. But again, I noticed that we got into the elevator and one of the students observed, he says, look, professor, round, you know, round curves rather than sharp edges to the elevator, you know. Wow. So hopefully this consciousness is starting to percolate, you know, into, into our times. I mean, it's just fascinating, right? Like it's what you're doing is, as I see it, Ingrid, is that, you're kind of like a being from a higher age, you know, on the on this topic of joy, and you are awakening us, you know, to like these ground, like you know, laws and realities that have always existed, but somehow we weren't paying attention to, hmm. and you're just kind of in a very fine-tuned way you know, becoming aware of it, discovering these ideas and then offering them up to us so that we also become aware of it and start practicing that. And I think, you know, that's kind of really the history of, you know, evolution of humanity is that at some point we just awaken to things which were always there in the physical world and in a human to human exchange, but somehow we had just awoken to the higher laws. Well, thank you for that. I don't know if I, I <laughs> maybe I'm a being from another planet or <laughs> a, different, a different place. I don't know about a higher, yeah. higher, but I, but I do think that, it is interesting to me how obvious these things seem. A lot of people are like, well, that's obvious. And it is obvious. And yet we don't do it. Um, yeah. We don't notice it. Uh, and so for me, I'm happy to be the this, this speaker of obvious truths. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. If it helps. Uh, and, and for me, in seriousness, I think the, the work is joy because it is considered an extra is seen as so trivial that it's not a thing that has been taken seriously in a lot of architecture. It's not been taken seriously, certainly not seen as important in the workplace. I think it's going to be increasingly seen as important in the workplace because employers now need to figure out how to get employees to want to come to an office as opposed to it being a thing they have to do. Um, so I, I'm hoping that we'll see more of it in, in the workplace. Um, but I think it takes having the science to understand how it's affecting people is a step that can help um, and help give some some impetus to make some of these changes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, folks, um, if you haven't yet come across um, Ingrid's book, then it has these chapters on these on these 10 aesthetics, you know, that, that you talk about energy and abundance and freedom and harmony and play and surprise and transcendence and magic and celebration and renewal. And um, you know, Ingrid, it's funny, you, know, you come from a design background. I come from a math background. I was really a math junkie when I was in college mm -hmm. and, you know, went on for more advanced studies around math. It took me a while to kind of like, you know, un, you know, uh, tether myself from what was my first and big love. And um, when I look at these these um, attributes that you have here, I mean, you know, I this is like why I used to love mathematics. You know, mathematics mm -hmm. was like a world of 
tremendous beauty, tremendous beauty, mm-hmm. where qualities like transcendence and harmony in terms of relationships and patterns and connections mm-hmm. between entities and, you know, all of that was uh, what made it a beautiful, beautiful world, you know, less mm. visible, you know, to the physical eye, but but really a very beautiful world. So uh, so it's, 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 it's fascinating. You know, I, I sometimes feel like maybe all these disciplines ultimately have the same common core, you know, that they come from. And then they just, you know, they express themselves in nature in different ways, but uh, but they mm. have the same shared universal laws behind them. And these hmm. are beautiful. I really commend you for not um, not going down the path of thinking of the aesthetics purely in physical terms, but hmm. first thinking of them in some kind of an ethereal set of terms that hmm. are repurposable to almost any enterprise, you know, almost anything we do. But then you apply them to the physical arena with, you know, the very... Um, yeah, attuned sensibilities you have about what energy really means in nature, what mm-hmm. harmony really means in nature. And so that's beautiful. Thank you for that. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting as I've lived with them, because now I guess I've been living with them for more than 12 years, these aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed that they can often become values as well. Um, so not just physical descriptors, but they are things that we seek as humans. Um, and so I think a lot about, for example, abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset and what that means. You know, there's there's seeing abundance around you and sensorial abundance and how that makes us feel. Um, but there's also thinking of things from a perspective of abundance. And I think a lot about companies, companies that have an abundance mindset and that foster an abundance mindset are so different than companies that foster a scarcity mindset. It's so much more likely to be joyful if they say, if it's not a scarce number of promotions where everyone's fighting to get to the top, right? Um, Or uh, there's, you know, there's this sense that everything is a zero sum game. It changes the way that you approach the experience. So I think they can be values as well as uh, aesthetic attributes. Uh, I love that. I love that. Um, You know, I've been doing a lot of thought around how um, there's so much of an emphasis today about looking at social impact of a business, environmental impact of a business and all of that. But a lot of that is being put in the language of profits, you know, that actually you make more money when you do social impact now because consumers yes. want those brands or investors want to invest in those brands or something. And I'm thinking, you know what, I'm not sure if that's the right kind of training to give, give people that, you know, do it because it makes more money. And when I look at like the Steve Jobs, you know, of the world, what I notice is like the opposite. What they did is, they did the right thing that, as they saw, you know, the world to be. Yes. Um, and then they just believed that the universe had enough in it that it would just, you know, pour the right, you know, opportunities and success and financial outcomes to them. And, and look what an amazing company he created, although he was never really attached to man- money. Larry Ellison has this beautiful sort of quote he gives as a, you know, dear friend and, um, you know, advisor to him. He, he talked about how he, he, he was just never interested in money, mm-hmm. but he was very interested in, like, changing the world and making a dent mm-hmm. in the universe. And hmm. now you've got the most, you know, valuable company in the world created on the basis of that. So I, I love this idea of abundance and, you, hmm. know, so, so, you know, just, just switching your thinking around you know, a little bit. Right. right? right. Yeah. So, so beautiful. So beautiful. Um, I, I want to, you know, I, I realize we just have a few minutes to go. Um, I want to highlight um, an important, I think, lesson that I'm learning from your work, which is that um, while you do really recommend um, the careful design of spaces and the engagement, you know, with with the environment that we're living in. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not, I'm not seeing you prescribe these to be necessarily very, you know, big budget kind of investments. I, I'm seeing you talk about these as 
some very, very simple and small adjustments that we can make very mindfully to our spaces, whether they're at home or in the office or beyond, that can spark that joy. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a very um, universal kind of opportunity that any or all of us have in any situation we're in. You know, again, please, you know, talk more about, you know, whether... I think that's I, right. I mean, I, I'm talking about paint. I'm talking about plants. Um, it's things that are not, that these things do not have to be costly. Um, they're things that anyone can do. And I think instead of attaching it to the objects and saying you need to buy this sofa or this coffee table, it can turn the crafting of your environment into a really creative and generative act. How, if you wanted to bring more circles into your space, how could you do it? Well, you could do it with lamps. You could paint them. You could um, draw them. You could cut them out of, you know, paper um, or, or put decals on your own. There's so many different ways you can, um, you can achieve this. And it, it doesn't have to be uh, an expensive or, or, um, or time-consuming endeavor to create a little bit more joy in your surroundings. You probably have a lot of the things already in your home, in your space, in your office to do some of these things. And it's really just about pulling them out of closets and, and putting them on display. Yeah. You know, how, how beautiful. I, um, my favorite, you know, example, an exemplar of what you have been, you know, educating us on is Gaudi um, mm -hmm. in Barcelona and all his beautiful work, you know, of the homes he designed, the Paguel he designed and all that. I have no doubt that you have, you know, awareness and, you know, appreciation for that as well. But, but tell me, tell me how you feel about Gaudi. And I want to ask you, like, you know, you've got some beautiful examples in your book of how this is playing out, you know, in the real world. It may not be as publicly, you know, um, you know, out there, but, 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 but if you look and you find, and you've done a wonderful job of that, you know, you'll see these pockets of, you know, really exemplary expression, right, of this joyful spirit in, in the conscious design of public spaces and private spaces and things. So, so yeah, so Gaudi is my favorite, but I've come to know of some other, you know, beautiful examples through you. Who's your favorite, all of those? Oh, well, I love Gaudi. And, and actually, I think it's interesting. A lot of people think that the root of the word gaudi is from Gaudi, but in fact, it comes from the Latin gaudere, which means to rejoice. So, mm. To some, for something to be gaudy, for something to be a little bit over the top is synonymous with to, to make joyful. Um, and so I think sometimes, you know, that sense of abundance, we hold ourselves back because we think it won't be tasteful. Um, but in fact, it is associated in a very basic way in the English language with joy. Um, favorite, favorite creators of joy. Um, the one who just popped to mind for me was Yayoi Kusama. I think she is a... Um, you know, she is someone who she's an artist and, uh, but she, she create her public art, I think is always about this sense of abundance is creating of abundance. She, whether it's an object like a pumpkin that she inserts into the space or these rooms she creates with dots where children and people can just move them all around and create these, these joyous environments. So for me, um, she would be, uh, one near the top. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I also want to commend you and um, highlight to our listeners that uh, while we have been emphasizing a lot of the visual aspect, you know, of joy stimulus, um, you have so much more that you've talked about as well as other small little ornaments, you know, things that we can do and engage in, 
in our workplace and in our homes to bring bring more joy. And we've started to document some of those, by the way, because, um, you know, I actually, you know, uh, collaborate with my wife to say that, you know, this year, one of our goals for our Mentora Institute is going to be to bring a more conscious, you know, expression of joy into our interactions and things. And so in addition to space related, you know, and print related, you also talk about language, you know, oriented ways to not just create more of that sensibility of joy, certain like small events that one can do around celebration and appreciation and beyond and just certain certain just like um, exercises and discipline of the mind as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is just my way of highlighting to our audience that there's a lot more to this than meets, you know, the eye in the confines of the conversation we've had. But uh, kudos, you know, for for looking at this very powerful, you know, quest for joy through all these different lenses. Thank you for that. To bring this all to culmination, I want to go back to, uh, you know, a point I made at the very beginning of this as to how much joy I got from just discovering, you know, your work and discovering your book and how it relates to a quest that has been very core to me from a very early age. In fact, in India, uh, where I grew up, one of the, uh, you know, one of the names or definitions of God is what they call Satchitanand, which means infinite avenue joy. Mm. And I just fell in love with that, you know, when I first encountered that. And so that's been, um, you know, at the very core of like my, my purpose in life is to explore and understand and pursue, you know, that idea that a fusion with the state of ever new, ever conscious, infinite bliss, you know, joy is uh, in fact, uh, you know, a, a right that all of us have as human beings. And my, my spiritual teacher, Yogananda, you know, he has this quote that I want to offer up to you as my little gift, you know, from today, which is he says, this joy is not an abstract quality of the mind. It is a conscious, self-born, self-expressed quality of the spirit. Beautiful. I was, I was very happy to see you also mention something almost similar where you talked about how, you know, this joy is always part of who we are. It's something that we just need to activate and express. And so perhaps the last little maybe message that I want to invite you to offer up to, to everyone today is that, you know, as you've said, you've so thoughtfully highlighted, we're living through a challenging time in human history. And there is a fair amount of struggle that uh, so many have faced and others have had to just support those who have been in struggle. At a time like this, uh, is there uh, a role for joy? And um, when we think about the mental health and other challenges that um, you know we are facing as a society, um, is one of the pathways to help alleviating that a pathway that you know is the pursuit of joy? I think absolutely. I think we we have to be careful that we're not. Um, doing it in a in a in a forced way right this idea of toxic positivity where we force ourselves to be happy or we don't allow others to experience sadness uh, we have to acknowledge the joy is something that lives alongside these difficult emotions um, it's not something we can force and at the same time the nature nature of our emotions is that uh, we can and we often do feel these little moments of joy, even in hard times. And if we allow ourselves to think, oh, it's a hard time, I'm not going to find any joy to overshadow that, um, then then it will be really hard to notice and capture them. So I think it it's an exercise of uh, remembering that joy is part of our resilience and allowing ourselves little, little things, um, little joys, uh, and really recognizing that those are um, they're not trivial. They, they're not throwaway. They're actually really important uh, to helping us get through this time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. In closing, final thought. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm extending myself. 
there is a free resource out there for all of us that you have talked about so thoughtfully, and that's nature. The power and grandeur and um, inspirational you know, impact and joyful catalyst that just nature can be for us. And even in a moment like what we're living through today, having people just find you know, their place and space where they can connect with something that just is a gift from, you know, from planet Earth to us you know, everywhere, right? Um, can you speak to that in a moment? Because yeah, you've, you've done well, some investigation. All of the aesthetics of joy are are derived in some way from nature because that was our ancestral environment. That's you know for millions of of years um, we or for eighty thousand years we lived in a, a and and our ancestors for many many years before that lived in this continuous environment of, of nature. And so that is, I think, what our senses are optimally tuned for. Um, it's what our attention is optimally tuned for, for sure. There's studies on something called attention restoration theory. When we go out into nature, uh, if our willpower is depleted, if our ability to focus is depleted, it restores it just by being out in nature for as little as 15 minutes. Um, so we know that there's a biological relationship um, between nature and our minds because they evolved in such close touch. And so things like birdsong, that's an easy way to bring it in. If you, if you have a brown thumb and you aren't able to keep such lush and gorgeous plants alive or you worry about your ability to do that, I mean, birdsong is another way um, or nature sounds because it brings in that um, that they've been shown to relieve pain um, and uh, and improve focus in different situations. So there are lots of ways to bring, even if you don't live near nature and it's harder to get access to it, um, there's always uh, some form of it that you can access that can, can bring you a little joy and a little peace. All right. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you for that. And folks, uh, for those of us who are actually watching more than just even listening to to Ingrid, I, I, I want to highlight to you that, you know, as your house is going through remodeling, as I understand, look how thoughtful, Ingrid, you are, <laughs> that the ladder that you have put behind you is giving us so much joy. And uh, in some ways, a matching, you know, outfit that you have. It's, it's a beautiful. Not intentional, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful look overall. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for that. Um, you know, I'm just tempted to draw one last, uh, you know, idea from you for our audience. So if you had to just give give us like one practical tip to go out and do something to, uh, yeah, just experiment with this idea of consciously crafting joy in our life today. You know, what might that be? Really simple. I call it joy spotting and it's going out into your surroundings with an eye toward looking for joy. Um, you don't have to know all the aesthetics of joy. You don't have to have anything specific in mind. Um, it, you can do it while you're walking your dog or just uh, taking a, a walk around the block. Um, but just Tune your senses and start to notice, um, do you see, you know, what do you see that brings you joy? It might be, strangely, it might be an orange parking cone. You think, hmm, that's nice in this bleak or bleak winter landscape to be able to see this bright pop of color and then see what happens next. Maybe the light is doing something interesting um, that brings you a little lift. Uh, maybe you see confetti left over from uh, a celebration. Um, in a city, the, the possibilities are endless. If you're out in nature, often it's quieter, more subtle. Um, but 
I think just even if it's 15 minutes, taking time to notice that there are things in your surroundings that can give you joy. Um, so we call that joy spotting. And if you see something, you can always hashtag it joy spotting. Um, there are, I think, more than 80,000 joy spotting posts um, on Instagram right now. And um, one of the things about joy is that uh, when we share it, it actually heightens our own joy. So we get more joy out of sharing it. So whether you text it to a friend um, or share it more publicly, um, notice some joy and then and then go share it. Well, on that measure, you must be one of the most joyful people in the world <laughs> because you've done so much sharing. Thank you for that. <laughs> Both today and, and years past. What's your big dream, you know, besides the beautiful family moments, having Graham, uh, raising him, uh, what's your what's your big dream, um, you know, in, in life at this stage with uh, where you are with this luminous work? Oh, thank you for that. I, I think for me, it's about helping more people become aware of the fact that joy is accessible to them. Um, I think as I've worked with people around this and spoken to people and, and, had conversations with readers. I think it's so, and especially creative people, I think there's a lot of work to undo, whether that's in our environment or in ourselves, to undo this idea that we unconsciously don't believe we deserve joy. We don't believe that certain others deserve joy. I think that is the the big work. Um, and that's that's what I'm focused on now. And there's an individual piece to that, uh, helping individuals unlearn um, their their own biases around joy. And then there's a societal piece around that. So for me, it's, it's the most joy I get is when other creatives take this work and they say, I, I did this thing. I, I changed this thing at my, at the school where I teach, or I got the doctor I work for to change his waiting room. Um, they're small things, but they they matter. And of course, when large organizations take it on, that's amazing too. But I think a lot of this work gets really happens at the hands of individuals. Yeah, yeah. So true. So wonderful. So folks, I encourage you to go out and be this kind of a change maker. Infuse yourself with joy. Go ahead and spot joy that is around you. Help serve and support others in getting sparked in joy. And uh, let's... Um, just give a big round of applause and a big thank you and wish uh, Ingrid you know, a whole lot of joy in your work and your life ahead. Thank you so much, Ingrid, for joining thank us you. today. Thank you so much. So what are we going to take away from this profusion of riches that Ingrid has offered us in this conversation? I have six takeaways and then one bonus at the end. The first is this idea that, yes, on the one hand, it does make sense to pursue happiness in the long run in a step-by-step -step way, something that you earn your way into. But at the same time, there is the opportunity for us in every moment of life to seek to explore and activate joy. And when we pay attention to what gives us joy in the moment where we architect our lives in a way where that joy is an active part of our daily experience, then we store in us a library of memories, which over time can help us even in moments of loss and sorrow. Because in those moments, we can go back to those library of memories with this individual, for example, perhaps, or this situation that may no longer be with us. And it's those fond memories that infuse us with a sense of joy and gratitude. 
The other learning, the second learning I want to offer to you is this notion that while we can explore joy from the inside out, the more meditational and mindfulness-like practices, which you know I'm very drawn to, perhaps many of you are too, that there is an outside-in approach as well, which is where we notice things in our environment which actually subconsciously activate that state of joy. Just starting to pay attention to those things and architecting our environment in a way that brings more of those opportunities to us. And so she talks, for example, Ingrid, about how there are just simple things like bubbles and cherry blossoms in the springtime and confetti um, that, you know, these things are not just joyful for a few people. They're actually not just joyful for one gender or ethnicity or something. Uh, they're actually things that give any or all of us joy. So there's something universal about it. She talks about then three kinds of forms of joy, individual joy, things that are unique to you, perhaps based on your special you know, life journey and memories that you've encoded for yourself, cultural joys, which are part of a certain culture, maybe a certain kind of food or a certain kind of color, and then universal joy, things that just speak to the human condition at a much more foundational level. So the fourth takeaway is this idea that joy is our birthright. It's not something that we have to earn our way into or something that is only relevant for or appropriate, you know, in certain situations over others. And she says it so beautifully. She says, joy isn't something that we have to earn. It's something that we are inherently entitled to as living beings. If we can say that we have universal rights to life and liberty, health and safety, and that these are worth fighting for, then I also think, she says, that we need to consider a universal right to joy. And I, I shared this quote from Yogananda that uh, this joy is not an abstract quality of the mind. It is a conscious, self-born, self-expressed quality of the spirit. So can you and I open ourselves to the possibility that joy is just resident at the very center of our being. And all we are meant to do is to use you know, the outer environment or perhaps our inner experience as catalyst to actually activate and awaken to that joy within she says it beautifully again. She says, if we were to see people as having the dignity and the right to some joy in their lives, these small moments of joy, then we would think about you know, our spaces in a different way, whether it's our workspace or uh, the spaces in, in public arenas or, or our homes. We would think about a lot of structures and systems in our society differently. Uh, I think that was very eye-opening for me that uh, over the course of time, people in positions of power and architects and others just have not necessarily always focused on creating the world around us in a way that is consciously focused on activating some of these elevating feelings like joy. Um, the aesthetics of joy, that was the fifth thing that we spoke to uh, Ingrid about, and she has so beautifully distilled them down to these, these 10, isn't it? And uh, this speaks, she says, to our unconscious mind. It brings out the best in us without us even being aware of it because of those universal elements of joy. Um, it's not that these things inherently bring us joy. It's the physical and sensorial attributes around them, you know, more kind of round, uh, for example, shapes, more, you know, certain kind of bright colors. And these aesthetics of joy, she says, you know, when they act on us unconsciously, they start to influence our behavior in very subtle ways. They change our interactions, you know, with others. We start to trust others more and, you know, others start to also trust us more when they're connected with us in these kinds of spaces. And so it's important, you know, perhaps, you know, at home, but also importantly at work and in our 
medical care facilities, in our prisons, every, in every you know, dimension and aspect of society, in our public spaces, to be thinking about these aesthetics of joy. And the sixth and final one was this notion that, you know, there are very, very simple things that we can do to activate joy. We don't have to have huge budgets and be really renowned architects, you know, et cetera. We can, we can just, you know, just using plants, you know, for example, uh, using a little bit of color, you know, using the right kind of shape, et cetera, do beautiful things to, um, in, you know, enrich our lives with a little bit more of that outside-in form of joy. Boy, um, we spoke there about nature and just um, you know finding yourself in nature, connecting with nature as just one of those things. But just the human being is wired in moments like that to activate that state of joy. And then the bonus inside was the thing that uh, Ingrid shared at the end: this notion of joy spotting, which is like go out for a walk today, and as you're just interacting with the environment, just um, observe for yourself what are the things that you experience. You know, an individual walking with their dog, and just seeing that dog be just such a loving mate to that individual. Perhaps just something as simple as that that gives you joy: joy spotting. Thank you. I hope it has been a meaningful journey for you, and I wish you a very joyful day ahead.